Turn with me in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 14. This morning we will continue our Genesis series, which brings us to this chapter and an interesting incident involving a war that has broken out among, in the Valley of Sidon, among the cities of the Jordan Valley, included among them two familiar names, Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's also an inhabitant there that is of particular interest to us this morning, Lot, resides near Sodom or in Sodom at this time, the nephew of Abraham. The title of this morning's message is meant to be surprising, War Hero Abram. It is surprising to think of Abram as a war hero. We've known him as a man of faith who has journeyed from a faraway land, Haran and Ur, according to God's word, and now has taken refuge, not permanent residence, mind you, still dwelling in tents. We find him at the Oaks of Mamre at this particular time, but he is a man who is without a permanent home, but he has set his face on a city, as Hebrews tells us, whose author and builder and designer is God. So Abram is a man of faith, walking not by sight, but by the promises that God has given him. Abraham is a nomad of sorts. He is journeying to a place that God will show him on the way, and even when he arrives, he remains dwelling in his tent. As a resident passing through or a stranger to those who are in the land, Abram doesn't share the same kind of stability and influence and power and authority that an established king might. The last thing we would think of in the course of a man like this is that he would be able to summon a strong and successful military force to rout four kings in one battle. But that is exactly what Abraham did in our passage today. And we'll find out why in due course. Abram, the war hero. The aim of this morning's message is to showcase the glories of salvation contrasted with the city of man. The glories of salvation are showcased in the exploits of Abraham and the testimony of this man of faith, especially when they're contrasted to the vain hope that is evident in the city of man. Representative cities of man include this morning Sodom and Gomorrah. They represent hope in another foundation for security and salvation that will prove futile. Meanwhile, Abraham, the man of faith, testifies to the only ground of salvation, the promise of God's word that in due course he would, through a long line of significant sons, provide a Savior, a Messiah. We know him as Christ our Lord. With your Bible open to Genesis 14, would you stand once more out of reverence for God's Word this morning, and let us consider God's Holy Scriptures, reading Genesis 14, 1 through 16. Here is the Holy Word of God. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Keterlaimer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and, king, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterlaimer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Verse 5. In the fourteenth year, Keterlaimer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karanam the Zuzim in Ham, the uh, Amim in Shaveah, Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Alperin on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Anmishpat, that is Kadesh, 
and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. With Keterlamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all, possess- all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who is dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner, who were allies with Abram. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Verse 16, then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women, and the people. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> An interesting passage indeed, with a, lot of, with a lot of names that are hard to pronounce. So I thank you for your patience as I stumbled through it. Genesis 14 is the first record of war in Scripture, properly speaking. There has been conflict, but as far as nation rising against nation, uh, coalitions and confederacies, joined together in this international affairs and so forth. This is the first time we see clear example of this recorded in the Bible. As such, this conflict is strikingly similar to many aspects of modern warfare, with one exception. Let me pause there. Today, the unbelieving worldview, secular humanism, teaches that man can advance of his own accord. We live largely in an era and a culture who tells us that we can perfect our own condition, that we are just a breakthrough of technology away from finding hope for the human plight, that we are just one administration, one uh, you know, next November voting cycle away from a much better future for all of us in this land. But one thing that we learn immediately from the scriptures is that wars, rumors of wars, and nations, coalitions, and confederacies, and strife among nations is something that has happened from the beginning of time, I should say, since the fall, and continues yet today. There is no hope for peace without the Prince of Peace. And no mere man, no mere sinner, can ever elevate himself and advertise himself and have policies in a campaign and say, I am the Prince of Peace, vote for me, and ever be allowed to compete for the throne of Jesus Christ, our Lord. No, there is only one who ultimately brings peace on earth, and he is the significant son, Jesus Christ. Now, there is a victorious man who brings resolution to this situation in Abram. But Abram didn't do so of his own merit and accord. He did so as an appointed son. He did so as one who prefigured the Prince of Peace who would come in defeat of all his enemies and bring ultimate resolution to the problem of sin 
and the problems that sin creates. Our first lesson you could say from this passage. Now, this conflict, as I mentioned, is strikingly similar to aspects of modern warfare with one exception. The victor and the spoils of this campaign are finally awarded to the significant son and patriarch, Abram, and who does not engage his troops, his armies, or his policies, his foreign policy, according to the prevailing motivations of that time, or, may I extend, the prevailing motivations of our day. Abraham, that is to say, is not interested in rebellion uh, for the sake of it. He's not interested in empire, expanding his holdings. He's not interested even in political independence, as good as that may be as far as it goes. He's not interested in increasing his power, his influence, his dominance, his renown, the things that motivate other kings of the region. Rather, he enters this conflict to liberate his kinsman and nephew, Lot, who is caught up in this chaotic affair. The occasion provides further opportunity to contrast the wisdom and security promised in covenant with the Lord to the ways and schemes of fallen man negotiating in his sinful self-interest and sinful national interest to secure an advantage over his neighbors. Now later, through the covenant leadership of his servant Moses, the Lord details blessings associated with covenant obedience. Leviticus 26, 7 and 8 tells us this, You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Now, let me pause there. This presumes a people who have the Lord as their king, who worship and serve the Prince of Peace, as it were, by faith at this time, and who follow distinctly God's moral order and God's law as He has laid it out, as the proper way to organize our affairs There are some who trust in chariots, but for those who trust in the name of the Lord their God, they have this promise. And so it continues, Leviticus 7 and 8, that is, five of you shall chase a hundred, a hundred of you shall chase 10,000, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Abram certainly demonstrated the truth or the promise of this principle on this occasion in Canaan. Whereas Lot, on the one hand, found himself hamstrung by the consequences of drifting from covenant security for the promise of material wealth. On the other hand, Abram testifies to the power and promises of God regardless of the odds. In the end, it was the faithfulness of Abram that secured deliverance and salvation for Lot. I want you to remember that. We'll close on that same point and expand it. In the end, Was it the works of Lot that preserved him in his dire need, in his moment where he needed salvation and deliverance from his existential enemy? No, it was not. It was the faithfulness of Abram that secured deliverance and salvation for Lot. This, of course, foreshadowed the hope of salvation provided through the covenant head to come. Imagine how much greater still the second Adam would be as he would wage war against his enemies, waging war on the cross and waging war in history, delivering all of his enemies as trophies under his footstool even today, according to 1 Corinthians 15. But we have shades and pre-shadowing of this, foreshadowing of this in our text today. So let's consider Abraham now in the role of war hero as we see him in his valiant conquest to defeat the enemies who have taken his son 
or I'm sorry, his nephew, his kinsman, into captivity. I'll give you a heading and three major points. Here's the heading. Relevant factors in Abram's conquest. So relevant factors. Number one, geopolitical context. Verses one through nine give us the lay of the land, the orientation of nation, the battle lines, the factors that motivate these different peoples. A second major point, collateral damage. Collateral damage means the side effects of a bad decision, if you will, or the fallout, the great tragedy that follows war, sometimes referred to as collateral damage. In our case this morning, we'll consider the collateral damage that Lot and his family sustained for drifting away from the true hope of security that is found in covenant with the Lord and leaving that behind for the greener pastures of the promise of worldly possessions and security. There's collateral damage associated with that trajectory. And then finally, covenant intervention. The hope and help that God provides by sending his servant Abram to intervene for his glory and on Lot's behalf. Those are our three major points this morning, relevant factors in Abram's conquest. First, let's consider the geopolitical context, if you will, the lay of the land, the orientation of the peoples, and these nations and their motivations. So, this is confusing at first read. <clears throat> if you're like me, I had a hard time making heads or tails, tails of it, but I did a little study, and I think I can simplify it for you. There are basically two groups of nations. One is five nations, one is four. So in Mesopotamia to the north, the dominant nation group are the ones who have subjected another nation group of five nations to uh, tyranny, and they have placed them under taxation and tribute. It says in 14.1, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariat, king of Eleazar, Keterlamer, king of Elam, Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war. So that verse 1 gives us those four kings of the Mesopotamian region. These are the dominant forces. Now, as history records, we don't exactly know who they are, but some shades or hints may be provided for us. Perhaps this reference to Shinar, which is associated with Babylon later, and nations that rise up in even the Tower of Babel before, connects these nations to what we've seen evident in the scriptures, evident in the scripture that we have identified as the concept of the city of man. In other words, these dominant kings represent the motivations of the city of man. And come to find out these five kings that they make war against, they represent hope in the city of man as well. Nevertheless, they have conflicting motivations, and so they are at war with one another. Now, the five kings to the south, including Sodom and Gomorrah, the region where, where Lot lived, they grew uh, resentful that they were subject to the tyranny of the Mesopotamian kings of the north. It says in verse 4, 12 years they served Keterlamer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So they rebelled against paying tribute to this uh, superior or this um, dominant nation group, and they declared their independence, refused to pay tribute, they re rebelled. We're not exactly sure what that rebellion looked like. Nevertheless, they were now in an antagonistic relationship with the kings to the north. Now it says in the 14th year, Keterlamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated. And then there's a list there. So now this these countries to the north are going to do something about it. The countries who used to pay them tribute have rebelled. And now the nations are coming, or these, this uh, coalition from the north, this confederacy of dominant nations, 
is coming south to make war on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then there's a list of nations in the middle that they defeat along the way. And these nations indicate a north to south trajectory. If you have a map of the Middle East or uh, Israel proper in your mind, you know, in the center is kind of that Dead Sea area. To the north is the Sea of Galilee. And imagine a line to the east traveling south. This would be the direction of the armies of the north, the Mesopotamian forces. When they get down kind of to the southern region of the Dead Sea, that's where the clash would happen. And that's where our story unfolds, where they come into contact with Sodom and Gomorrah and the kings of that region. These are the battle lines. <clears throat> Nations and kings from the north Mesopotamian region had asserted their dominance by subjecting five lands and five kings in Zoar, or the Sodom and Gomorrah area, to tribute. This is also sometimes called a suzerain and vassal arrangement. It's a, basically a covenant or an agreement, terms and conditions between a greater and the lesser party. Now, this persisted 12 years. As I said, in the 13th year, there was rebellion. Lots, lots regions secured their independence, but now they must fight to retain it as four kings march south, indicated by the cities that fall in their wake as they advance toward the cities in the Jordan Valley. The four kings, in the end, reestablished their dominance by soundly defeating Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., and taking spoils and hostages from each city, including Lot, his family, and his possessions. That is to say, until they meet a superior force still of 318 men from Abram's clan. And then there's a big upset. So those are the battle lines. This is part and parcel to the geopolitical context, if you will. Geo referring to geography, political referring to rival nation factions. Now, what can we say about this? Well, as is often the case in the first mention of Scripture, in this case, war, we see here laid out principles, principles that govern a, a world that is caught in sin, that is lost and fallen. This is a post-Babel and post-fall reality that is laid before us. In other words, after the Tower of Babel, it follows that national alliances are shaky, unpredictable, unstable, and ineffective. So recall Genesis 11, we have this combined effort to unify the forces, the ingenuity, and the efforts of man to save himself, essentially, right? As the people migrated east, 11.2, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And you remember the story? The Lord came down as it were. He looked upon their unified efforts and he decided, excuse me, to do something about it. And the Lord, as the most superior force of all, frustrates their plans to secure their future by their own devices. And he creates the nation groups. And these nation groups in the providence of God are there as sort of backbones in the hull of the stability of the world order. They do not allow the world to grow as wicked as it once grew right before the flood happened. So God in his sovereignty established nations as a way to preserve to some degree the natural order so the world does not collapse into depravity to the same degree as the pre-flood world did. Hence, in a post-flood and post-Babel world, and it remains true today, national alliances are shaky, unpredictable, unstable, and ineffective, ultimately speaking. Do you not see this in our news today? I mean, was it just last week or the week before? Where, at, you know, if you 
click to the top of a news aggregating site, let's say Drudge Report or something, the first 12 headlines were frightful. Why? Because the sword rattling of war was alive and well even among us. A general of the Iranian uh, nation or whatever, a guy who was responsible for different policies and different efforts over there was killed by a drone attack by our forces, and all of a sudden everyone was worried that war might break out, and certainly there was these actions that were happening where one nation is uh, exerting its force and dominance and making its presence known against another. Has NATO been sufficient to establish world peace? Has the United Nations preserved the continuity and the stability of the world order on into the future? Has America proved itself as a stabilizing force, usurped the throne of the Prince of Peace to make sure that this world stays cool, calm, and collected to bring a sort of relative heaven on earth? Absolutely not. Uh, We see that there is only one hope for peace in the world, and it is through God's word. It is his world, and he is the one who we should invest our hope in, not in any alliances or coalitions or NATO or the UN or the American empire and so on and so forth. This is a post-fall and post-Babel reality. Now, concentration of power and influence are ordinary motivations of civil powers in a post-fall Babel, in a post-Babel world. In other words, there's a powerful motivation among nations to concentrate their power and their influence. And so they continue today as they did then. However, and this is testimony to the sovereignty of God, the leash on global centralization is much shorter than the would-be oligarchs assume or the underclasses fear. In other words, the Lord will only allow the Tower of Babel to be built so high before he frustrates the efforts again. Our God is sovereign over geopolitical national affairs. He demonstrates his sovereignty in our story today. He demonstrates his sovereignty in our world today. Do not be caught up in the news cycle, paralyzed by fear that your God and King Jesus Christ does not rule with an iron rod so strongly that he can dash as clay pots any nation that rebels against him and scatter as so many shards across the landscape of history any imposter to his throne. Part of the reason or part of the record in Genesis 14 ought to give us faith that we need not fear that anyone can frustrate the plans of our sovereign God. God can raise up a fighting force of 318 servant soldiers to go forth against four kings and defeat them all at once. God can raise up through Gideon, his faithful, an army of similar size, and at night rout all the Midianites, turn them against themselves, and declare great victory for his people. Why? Because his people trusted not in chariots and horses, but trusted in him. Abram demonstrated this kind of faith. The rest of the kings, the rest of the peoples had faith in themselves or their power or their ingenuity or their schemes or their influence or their authority or, and so on and so forth. Abram was an exception to the rule. May we be found allied with him as some did. Now, entangling alliances are a tempting promise of joint security, prosperity, and cultural solidarity, but they ultimately will prove foolhardy. And there's no greater proof of the foolhardiness of a culture that does what it wants to do than Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm sure you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even most people in the world have as well. Why have they heard of it? Because these two nations or these two cities become a byword. 
They become a metaphor for foolishness because they continued in their sin and in their unrepentant state, they became an example of judgment to come. Sodom and Gomorrah are not the only ones who will be rained on with fire from heaven, so to speak, if they do not repent. Jesus himself said that, if I remember right, Cherazin and Bethsaida are going to be culpable to an even higher degree. Why? Because the Son of God walked among them and they did not bow before his authority and lordship. And these days, the gospel has gone forth into the nooks and crannies of the world, calling all men everywhere to repent of their idolatry, placing their hope in nations or any other idol, and to bow before Jesus Christ. And if they do not, the foolhardiness of their idolatry, idolatry will be demonstrated when their nation crumbles around them and their society proves a foolhardy attempt to compete with the Lord of glory. And if it does not happen in this lifetime, it will eventually. It certainly will happen on the final day of judgment. There's no suzerain vassal. There's no treaty dynamic of international relations that does not end in the tragedy of counterfeit. True covenant assurance only comes through allegiance to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And in this post-Babel reality, we see a stark contrast to all of this in Abram, the significant son. Abram is already manifesting what was prophesied of him, that he would be an extraordinary light to the nations. Abraham had an extraordinary call that what God did through his legacy would be a light to the nation. So young people, question for you. Let's go over the legacy of the sons of Noah again, all right? So uh, let's start with Japheth. It's Japheth and the, you guys remember? Say again. Uh, close, it starts with a C. Japheth and the co coastlands, okay? And the legacy of Ham. Ham and the city builders. And then Seth, or Shem, sorry, and the significant sons. That's exactly correct. So what the young people are remembering uh, is the three legacies of the sons of Noah that play out in the themes of Genesis. We have Japheth and the coastlands. Japheth represents the distant regions that would be reached with the promise of the covenant eventually, and that's being fulfilled even today with the spread of the gospel. We have the legacy of Ham, which represents faith in man and what he can do. That's the city-building legacy. Nimrod, Babel, Sodom, Gomorrah, and so forth. And then we have the legacy of Abram, who is in the line of Shem, and that's the legacy of significant sons. Uh, young people, name a couple more significant sons. We have Abram. Who else do we have in the line of significant sons? Shout out another name. Noah. Noah. Good job. Another one. Anybody? Abraham, yes, yes. Any other significant? Elijah, yeah, good job. You guys are on the right track. The line of significant sons continue through the scriptures. David is a good example. We might reference him later. Yeah, that's the one I was looking for. Jesus, the most amazing of all. So, okay, we've set the stage. We see the context, geopolitical context and the literary context. The battle lines are drawn. We have these posts. Babel realities, we see power politics at play here, entangling alliances, balance of power, national interests and security, all these circumstantial uh, things uh, have motivated these coalitions. And this is the scenario we find ourselves in when we find, when uh, we discover Lot and what happens to him in verse 10. Returning to our text, note verses 10 through 12. Now in the valley of Siddim was, now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, 
And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who is dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. These three verses illustrate to us the collateral damage of finding hope or being tempted to leave or minimize the importance of the covenant and to buy into the lie or the advertisements of current culture that say this is where you should set up your tents. Lot, this is just the first of many chapters of the aftermath and fallout of his greener pasture compromise, if you will. Note, although I'm sure Lot thought he could find security in the cities, notice how vulnerable they proved to be. There came a point in Lot's life where he actually took refuge in a cave. But you remember when he had to leave Sodom and Gomorrah because there was going to be this sulfur fire rain and he's begging with the angels. He's telling him, oh, let me just flee to this city. It's just a little one. What is uh, Lot demonstrating by this temptation, this gravitational pull towards this city? It's hope that he was distracted by in the city of man. In the end, Lot proved to be a righteous man, but he was saved as through fire. Lot was not an example of one who was noble and faithful in the same way Abram was. Lot was saved in spite of himself. Lot had a real problem. He had a real addiction to find security in a place other than the assurance of covenant. Thus, he turned his back on Abraham to some degree, Abram, and found refuge in the city. But how vulnerable did the cities where Lot decided to dwell dwell prove to be a real irony here. Notice verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Imagine that picture. You have dignitaries, men of prominence and influence and authority, now scared out of their minds, running away from the Mesopotamian armies of the north. And they're getting bogged down, who knows, their chariots or horses or maybe just on foot in these pits. And so the enemy catches up to them as they're caught in these quiet, this quagmire and these swamps, perhaps quicksand, and they're quickly dispatched. Now what a contrast to the hope of Sodom and Gomorrah that Lot raised his eyes upon in, verse, in chapter 13. Notice 13.10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Watch where you lift your eyes is the message here. The world promises fields ripe unto harvest, but in the end, they're nothing but bitumen pits. Lot lifted up his eyes and thought, wow, look at the bounty. Look at the material wealth. Look at the security and the hope and the provision that lies just beyond these hills. I'm sort of tired, he must have thought, of the wilderness wanderings with my uncle Abram. I'm going to reside over here where life is more comfortable. Take a break. Retire from the arduous calling of walking by faith. But it wasn't long before Lot realized that that Jordan Valley, well watered everywhere, that he imagined as a utopian dream. The garden of the Lord, Eden realized, turned out to be nothing but a bitumen pit that those who fled from their captors would be destroyed in just outside the premises of this city of man. The city of man offers scant refuge on the day of judgment. 
Do you think Minneapolis, St. Paul, will evade the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think, think of bigger, more prominent figurehead cities in America, New York, L.A.? Do you think that the humanism that is boasted in these population centers that says we can do it ourselves, we can perfect ourselves, thank you, do you think they will stand on the day of the coming of the Lord? No way. We saw in recent years that one hurricane can flood the streets of Wall Street and take out the business enterprise of the whole world, the hub of global commerce, and one natural disaster. This to show that our God is sovereign over this world, and there is no hope and security. There is no rebuilding of Eden. There is no passing through those cherubim who guard the sacred presence of the Lord because they're equipped with a flaming sword. And, it so, and so it goes everywhere that appears a well-watered paradise ends up in the final analysis to be nothing but a bitumen pit. The city of man offers scant refuge on the day of judgment. And we see this contrast in our text today. Cities are vulnerable. Secondly, Collateral damage is cultural consequences to pitching your tents in compromise with the wicked world around. The fruit and fallout of Lot's gamble multiplies as his relationship to Sodom is progressively binding. I want you to notice a trajectory in our text today. Notice in Genesis 13, 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So in the picture here, we have Lot camped perhaps just outside the outskirts of this city. But in our story today, we find him a little closer, do we not? It says uh, of Lot in our text uh, today uh, in 14.12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So do you see the trajectory of Lot's uh, direction here? First, he's settled among the cities. Now he's dwelling in Sodom. And then we turn over a few pages to 19.1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Gates in the ancient world represented places of judgment and commerce. So this is where the respected leaders, those who were central to the order of the city, would judge cases and so forth. So increasingly, Lot has a closer and closer relationship with Sodom, and this has real consequences. The fruit and fallout of this is absolutely devastating and only increases through our text, and in future weeks we'll find that as Lot is eventually exiled out of the city, saved as though through fire, takes refuge in a cave, is made drunk by his daughter's who were scared that they would not be able to have any future or family, and they raised up through their father children by incest and so forth. These, this is the collateral damage of trusting in any way but the Word of God and what He lays out in His Scriptures. There is a real contrast between this and Abram, is there not? No, Abram had those who were allied with him. Note in 14.13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who is living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ashkel and of Aner, these were allies of Abram. See that kind of parenthetical note there? Abram had guys who were with him that presumably did not come from Ur or Haran, 
but nevertheless hitched their wagons, recognizing that the favor of the Lord was on this man. And they were blessed in doing so. Notice the contrast to the plight of these men with Lot. In other words, uh, Mamre the Amorite, Eschol and Aner fared better than Abram's own blood nephew. Proof of this comes in verse 24 of Genesis 14. And I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with me. Abram, Abram is talking about the spoils or the, at least the food that is offered his fighting force. He says, let Enner, Ashkel, and Mamre take their share. So we find that these men who were allied with Abram, who had hitched themselves recognizing that he was a man of God and appreciated the fact that he had erected an altar by the oaks of Mamre in Genesis 13, 18, and they fared better in the end, at least in this a provisional instance, than Lot himself. So there was a real contrast. Abram was joined in his campaign by these allies. They recognized this man of God in their midst, no doubt, and aligned themselves with the altar builder. As a consequence, they were victoriously favored with Abram. And this, of course, is a real irony when contrasted to Lot. Abraham's own blood nephew rejected this blessing, at least to some degree, for worldly gain, reaping a life of sorrows. So in this section of collateral damage, what are the main takeaways? We continue to see the theme all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. These are two categories of people. The seed of the serpent places faith in the ingenuity of man, much like original sin. Uh, and the seed of the woman, they place faith in the significant son, that one day from this line of significant sons would come one who would bruise Satan, or who would crush Satan's head, though his heel would be bruised. And this dynamic of two different peoples, those who follow Abram and those who follow the promise of Sodom and Gomorrah, ultimately the serpent, Satan himself, we see the clash of their destinies. Secondly, we see in another way, and as we've mentioned, the city of God versus the city of man, as Hebrews goes on to identify this sort of clash of ideals or worldviews. And again, as we've mentioned, we see significant son Abram versus the city builders who seek their own comfort and convenience and security according to the legacy of Ham. So here we have, so far, relevant factors in Abram's conquest. Number one, the geopolitical context. Number two, the collateral damage. And now we have salvation. Point three, final major point this morning, covenant intervention. In spite of Lot's plight and his, the undeserving nature of the situation he is in. He is nevertheless saved in this instance, as we said, by the faithfulness of Abram. Verse 13. <clears throat> then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who is living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and of Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken, taken captive, thank you, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. In verse 16, then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions 
and the women and the people. We don't have time to cover this directly this morning, but mark in your own notes a parallel passage. 1 Samuel 30, 1 through 20. In this account, a very similar situation is laid out. David uh, in, has uh, left in his campaign um, his family in, uh, to take refuge in Ziklag, and he comes back only to find that his family and the families of his men have been kidnapped, the place is ransacked and ravaged by fire and so forth. And so what's the first thing he does? He seeks the Lord. And then in faith, he gathers his 318, if you will, men, and he goes forth on a mission to liberate his family and the families of his men, and he is successful. And he returns with his wives and their uh, possessions and so forth. And this is another intervention where a significant son proves to be uh, a ma- when he's uh, proves that the enemies of God's people are no match, no matter how great in number. There are covenant implications to this scenario that's going on here. In other words, if there was not a family relationship between Abram and Lot, Lot would have been dead to rights, would have no hope of being rescued. But what do we find twice in our text? Reference to kinsmen. In other words, Abram pursues Lot because of the family bond. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, verse 14, he led forth his trained men. And then verse 16, he also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, and the women and the people. In a covenant relationship, like a family, we have pictured our relationship with the Lord. Ultimately, Lot's assurance could not be based in his own faithfulness and works. They were indeed filthy rags. But there was hope for Lot in his kinsman relationship to his Redeemer, if you will, Abram, who is prefiguring a Christ-like intervention role. In the end, the basis of our hope for salvation is our adoption the kinsman, the family relationship that we have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God has not just saved you, he's adopted you. And you are spiritual blood now with Abram, Abraham, after his name is changed, and with the Lord. And herein is a picture of where our hope lies. These are covenant implications of the hope that Lot had. We might ask this question, what is a stronger source of hope the fact that Lot was related to Abram or the fact that his flocks flourished for a time on the fields of the plains of Jordan, of the Jordan Valley, <clears throat> on the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, there were times in Lot's life, life where he thought, it seems, that the promise of lush fields and plains of Sodom and Gomorrah carried more value than his relationship to Abram. But his eyes were opened in this instance, were they not? Because he was related through the bonds of family to the covenant head, Abram, in this instance, he was saved, he was rescued. Jesus Christ is the ultimate covenant head. He is stated, listed in Scripture as the second Adam, so that all who are in him experience his work of salvation. That is to say, just as Lot was in Abraham, as it were, so he was saved from the Mesopotamian kings in the north. In the same way, you, if you are in Christ Jesus, are saved from the consequences of your sin, death, and hell because of your covenant head. 
This is a covenant intervention. There is a family bond. Now the news reaches Abram in the providence of God by a messenger prepared by the Lord to bring him this news. And where does he receive this news? He receives his news at the Oaks of Mamre. The Oaks of Mamre, 13, chapter 13, 18, are associated with an altar. Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the Oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. We can assume, as David did, and in this case, that Abram sought the Lord before he went on this conquest. He was dwelling in the place where he had built an altar. Abram had learned this lesson himself the hard way. Remember when he sought greener pastures in Egypt and then lied that, you know, kind of white lied that his wife was his sister and so forth. When he repented and returned to Canaan, the first thing he did was to build an altar. And now he was dwelling at that altar place when the news reached him. So here we have another covenant implication. Abraham begins his campaign at the place of altar worship, seeking the Lord and establishing his footsteps according to the word of God. He does so on the basis of a family bond, the kinsman relationship that he shares with Lot. He intercedes or intervenes on behalf of his nephew. And this is demonstrated in the action that he took uh, to deliver his, his nephew from the clutches of this aggressive force and to save him in this instance from an existential threat. And in the end, there is a restoration of Lot's estate. The kinsman Lot returns with his possessions and the women and the people. And here we have a covenant picture of the redemptive power of our relationship with the Lord. Now, the favor that God had on Abram was demonstrated in many ways. No doubt, a vastly inferior military, by new military and numerical strength, 318 strong, these men picked a fight with four kings. We recall the story of Gideon. The servants and associates of Abram proved victorious as they divided their forces and attacked these guys at night. <clears throat> they were victorious, and even this messenger who carried the news to him came as a testimony of God's favor upon him. The providence of God ordered this, these scenario, this situation and these affairs to grant Abram the victory. We glean from this the following truth. The providence and favor of the Lord ought to be the number one factor we consider in global affairs, wars, history, politics, the order of this world, and right down to the individual and our own decisions. I submit to you that in our day and age of relatively, largely speaking, generally speaking, unbelief, perhaps the single biggest missing element in our concepts, in our plans, in our policies, in our analysis of the circumstances that we face, Perhaps the number one missing element is the favor of the Lord, is his providence, his control, and his sovereignty. Abram acknowledged these things and went forward in faith. And 318 with the Lord on their side proved to be victorious over four kings and the armies that they could boast. And God gave his servant the victory. It says covenant implications, God's favor over his significant son was demonstrated in this action. And in so doing, Abram proved to be a blessing to the nations. I want you to note that not only Lot and his family, but the whole region was liberated as a consequence of this action. 
Not just Lot, not just his possessions, but we find later, and we'll cover this next week in more detail, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand, this is verse 22, to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And what's going on here? Well, the king of Sodom wants to give Abram a gift, a thank you gift for delivering him and his land from uh, and, and granting to them a military victory. This happened as a consequence of Lot dwelling among them. In other words, Abram was not just a blessing to Lot, but he was a blessing to the nations in this instance. As we go back to Genesis 12, we see shades of this prophecy coming to pass already. I will make of you, the Lord had said, 12.2, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's a question. Would this gracious intervention, preserving the region and sparing them from judgment and the mercy of God through the actions of his servant, would these things move the cities of the Jordan Valley? Would they move Sodom and Gomorrah to repentance? No, they would not. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah had been mercifully saved uh, from this utter destruction by the kings of the north. But they did not repent of their sin. They did not turn from their wicked ways. God had spared them. Now, many of us, to our shame, are gun-shy about many stories in the Old Testament. Do not be gun-shy about anything in God's Word, is the admonition. But think about it in context. Why are uh, sometimes preachers hesitant to proclaim the judgments that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin and the nature of their sin, namely homosexuality? Because in our virtue signaling, sin-ridden, depraved culture, these things are now to be celebrated, not to be held up as examples of judgment-worthy wickedness. But notice what is often lost. We think, oh, God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and all they wanted to do was be happy and love in their own way or whatever our wicked world tells us today. Notice what is missed in that commentary. God's long-suffering mercy, sparing Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, long before, ultimately, his patience had ended and he brings judgment on those cities. Right here, he had spared them from judgment. Did they repent? No. They had light among them. The significant son, Abram, had granted to them freedom from their oppressors and they did not repent and turn from their sin. Our God is patient. Our God is merciful. Our God is long-suffering. And his mercy is only magnified as Abram later intercedes for the same region, begging that if there's just 10 righteous men, that he would save the city from destruction. Ultimately, that would not prove to be the case. And the only ones who are saved are Lot and his family. That is, those who do not look back to the city of man that will be destroyed at the coming of the Lord. Consider that in our day and age. The Lord has certainly been patient with us, has He not? And though we have pride marches in the streets to celebrate the depraved sin that Sodom and Gomorrah sanctioned and championed, yet God has spared sulfur rain upon our own heads. If He should save us from the judgment we deserve, what ought our response be? to call people's attention to the long-suffering kindness and favor of the Lord, and to 
encourage and exhort that we would be aligned with his significant son, Jesus Christ. Because in the end, God will not be mocked. And there's no one who doubles down in their sin that will escape that day of reckoning. We must turn from our sinfulness. We must confess faith in God's only way of hope and salvation. Then and only then might we be spared. Two weeks ago, we were in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. And Peter said that the sufferings and subsequent glories of Jesus Christ are the theme and epicenter of the prophets. Indeed, by extension, all the scriptures. Have we seen something of the glories and sufferings of Jesus Christ evident, at least in symbolic form in our text today? I submit to you, yes. As we close this message, consider the rejected covenant head. So the covenant head that was not respected by Lot, Abram, rises, or he rises to defend, even to his own hurt, risking his own hurt to intervene in spite, uh, for, uh, on behalf of his own, despite their disqualified standing and wandering from covenant security. So Abraham risks his own hurt as the covenant head to intervene on behalf of his nephew who doesn't deserve it. This is the shape of our text. This is one of the big picture takeaways. This is the gospel connection, is it not? Can you think of another significant son? Can you think of an ultimate covenant head who was rejected by his own, who risked his own hurt, indeed, who was bruised and pierced and broken and whipped and crucified for a people who he called his own, who he loved before they loved him, who first loved us before we loved him, who shed his own body and blood to save us, to ransom us, to buy us back from the enemy of our souls, even though we did not deserve it? Yes, Abram in this role, in his covenant intervention, prefigures the son of Abraham, the son of David, to come, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. What is the proper response when we realize such a thing? Imagine if you were Lot. When you have this sigh of relief, having your family return to you and your possessions and relative peace, should you not weep at the feet of your uncle and say, I am sorry for ever wandering from the covenant security that is promised to you. I want to bind myself as close as possible to the covenant head, to the one through whom God will bring the promise of ultimate salvation in the future. I beg of you, as our eyes are opened by the proclamation of God's word, to bind yourself to Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom the promise of salvation is secure. He is the one through whom we are delivered from all our enemies, even the greatest and last among them, death itself and hell that our sin deserved. And so this is the message of Abram, the war hero. He is only a war hero because Christ is ultimately the war hero, defeating our greatest enemies in battle. And Abram prefigures his role even in our text today. And through this record, let us look forward, let us look through this testimony to our Messiah and as he is revealed in Scripture and respond accordingly. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray in our own hearts that the glories of salvation would be magnified as we see them contrasted with the false hope, the vain ambition, and the folly and foolhardiness of the city of man. I pray that you would root out within us the temptation to turn aside to any other hope than that which is in Christ alone. 
I pray, Lord, that we, especially in this year, where there'll be so many idols that compete for our attention, I pray that we would turn to Jesus Christ and that we would bind ourselves to Him. I pray that we would find hope, security, and assurance in what He has done on Calvary and what He has promised. I pray that you would use the admonition of your word to sanctify us to that end. I also pray that you would use the proclamation of your scriptures to draw the lost out of Sodom and Gomorrah into repentance and faith to turn from their wickedness and repent while there remains today before the judgment fires of your day of reckoning fall upon their heads. And I pray that when they do, that we would be ready and able with your word upon our lips to give them a testimony, the reason for the hope within, and to, call, and to call them to discipleship and following of Christ, even as we strive to follow you. And all this, that you might be glorified, that your kingdom would advance, your enemies would de- be defeated through your triumphant church. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.